Hello, everyone. My name is Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network. I'd like to welcome you all to today's webinar, which is hosted by the Humanitarian Policy Group and HPN, and focuses on activism and action beyond localization. We all know that better recognition, funding, and support of local humanitarian responders is long overdue. But many humanitarian organizations haven't waited for global level reforms within the grand bargain to drive the agenda forward. Instead, individuals, peer networks, and organizations large and small have tried to correct the sector's imbalances in their own ways. Apart from the often technical or policy-related debates within the grand bargain, there's a range of dynamic developments, including hyper-local initiatives, survivor-led activities, civil society activism, and South-South cooperation, all of which we're going to hear more about during today's discussion. And these developments and opportunities are shaping the localization agenda beyond the grand bargain. And the, the conclusion of the first five-year phase of the grand bargain this year and the proposed next two-year phase raise questions for the humanitarian sector of how best to continue to make progress on supporting local leadership and local action and whether COVID-19 has accelerated these locally-led initiatives and whether it has provided incentives for international organizations and donors to better support local actors are also important questions. So drawing on their own experience and on recent HPN publications, our panelists will highlight activities and activism on local humanitarian action that are occurring outside of the formal policy processes and how that landscape is adapting and changing to tackle old problems not being addressed by the wider humanitarian system. But before I introduce our excellent panel, I just wanted to mention a couple of housekeeping issues. I'm sure many of you joining us today will have thoughts and reflections that you'd like to share with us. So please do so in the chat. And if you have a question for the panel, please type them in the Q&A box and I'll put them to the panel a little later on. And for Twitter users, we'll post the hashtag and Twitter handles in the chat now. Closed captions are also available during this event by clicking on the button at the bottom of your screen. And just a reminder that this event is being recorded. So the video will be available on the event webpage in a couple of days time. And you can listen to the discussion through the ODI event podcast channel. Okay, so now let's meet the panel. First of all, I'm delighted to welcome May Gerar, the Women's Development Program Director for East Jerusalem YMCA and member of the East Jerusalem YMCA Senior Management Team. May's been working in Palestine on gender equality, development, and humanitarian aid with uh, EGYMCA. And since 2012, she's dedicated her time to working with partners on survivor and community-led response approaches which we'll discuss in more detail later on. And May is a member of the Charter for Change Coordination Group and of the ACT Alliance Emergency Preparedness and Response Planning Working Group. Welcome, May. And uh, also a very warm welcome to Seema Ganel, who is a founding member and director of Support to Life, or Hayata Destek, which is a humanitarian organization with its headquarters in Istanbul. And in addition to emergency relief and recovery work, Support to Life is involved in protection and resilience work for displaced populations. Seema has been working 
uh, in humanitarian aid and international development for over 24 years. And she's worked in India, Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, and now focuses on work inside Turkey. And I wanted to mention that both Seema and May have supported the Humanitarian Practice Network in reviewing articles published in HPN's latest edition of the Humanitarian Exchange magazine on localization and local humanitarian action. Um, and I, I'm also very pleased to be joined by Andrew Furman, Editor-in-Chief at Civicus, the Global Civil Society Alliance. He's responsible for researching and writing Civicus's State of Civil Society Report, a regular analysis of civil society trends, um, challenges and responses. And in earlier work with Civicus, Andrew headed the research convening and communications teams. Andrew previously worked with the Commonwealth Foundation, an intergovernmental civil society agency in areas including people's participation in governance, culture, and civil society strengthening. And last but not least, uh, I'd like to uh, introduce my colleague, John Bryant. John is a senior research officer for the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI, and his areas of work have covered a range of global humanitarian reform issues, including accountability to aid users, digital technology, financing, and the localization agenda. And over the past year, John and colleagues have been investigating the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on locally led responses through a mix of interviews and a practitioner diaries method, which is a first for HPG. So I'm going to pass over to John now, who will share some emerging findings from that research project. Over to you, John. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks so much, Wendy. Um, I'm really excited to hear from, uh, from our panelists today. But, um, but before that, I just wanted to share some very brief uh, highlights from soon-to-be-published research. We've, we've nearly finished here at the Humanitarian Policy Group, which I hope will be really relevant to this, um, this discussion. So for the past year, as Wendy mentioned, we've been investigating what the impact of the COVID pandemic has been on the, the so-called localization agenda. Um, that's been informed by interviews with practitioners and uh, practitioner diaries um, from 32 humanitarian uh, staff members uh, from local uh, and international organizations and agencies based, based around the world and continuing their work this year. Uh, so in their own words and over many months they gave us their their experiences and, and perspectives on, on how their work changed as a consequence of the pandemic so i'd like to just just share a few a few key findings from 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 them now so respondents often spoke about the the formal humanitarian reform process right as, as encapsulated in, in the grand bargain that's a really important process but it, it's far from the full picture of local humanitarian responses um, as our as our diary participants were very very fond of telling us quite frequently um, so this study was was a good reminder that as with every crisis local responders based in the crisis context are the first to respond that was the same with COVID and also the many crises that occurred concurrently over the past year. So uh, we, we, we heard about typhoons in the Philippines, Ethiopian refugees arriving in Sudan, uh, fires in the Rohingya camps in, in, in Bangladesh and, and flash flooding in India and, and many more, which I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about today. Those responses are a testament to the, to the expertise and the capacity of local actors, including their ability to quickly mobilise volunteers. 
Secondly, COVID in some cases did sort of open a few more doors for local actors as they as they took on responsibilities and roles uh, vacated in some cases by international actors. So in Uganda, for example, uh, uh, LNGOs, local non-governmental organizations were for the first time leading on sub-national hazard risk and vulnerability assessments. That's a process that will continue beyond the pandemic. But also refugee-led organisations, we, we heard for the first time, were granted permits to provide services in displacement camps um, by UNHCR and national authorities in, in, in the country. That's a shorter term change, but it's one that we heard um, respondents, respondents told us they, they hoped will lead to a better, a better position for these local actors. Those examples and, and many others like them really highlight the key role that governments play in either facilitating or challenging the work of local NGOs and wider civil society. So diarist work in Sudan, conversely, that's a, you know, a country with a highly restrictive civil society space in many ways, reported about the effects of the deregistering of, of over 50 national uh, of over 50 local and national NGOs over the study periods they were seen as having links with uh, with the previous administration in the country and that you know really hampers the 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 early work that had already happened on on, on localization also more than international actors strengthening the capacity of local actors uh, the study really highlighted the extent of peer networks of support uh, among local NGOs in many countries. There's a lot written, including from us, <laughs> about how capacity building works, how that you know how those relationships work. It's often very one way, and I think this was a really good reminder that, in the words of one diarist, you know, local organisations, civil society organisations, they have their own commitments to building their capacity. They don't they don't sit around and wait for it to be built by internationals, but instead, you know, they they learn, they borrow, they engage with with their peers and international networks as well. So we've heard about that process happening in, in countries as diverse as, as Libya, uh, India, where there is uh, the founding of a, a national practitioner hub. Uh, and, uh, and Nigeria as well, where training workshops on, on child combatant reintegration, led formerly led by UN agency, has instead been continued and supported by a network of, of local NGOs who pulled their resources to make that happen. So in Indonesia, um, you know, we'll talk a little, little bit, I'm sure, about Southeast Asia and how in many, you know, for the localization conversation, that's a real regional lead in many respects. Um, the membership of, of, of a group in Indonesia called Sajaja, which is a sort of network of networks of civil society organisations, that grew uh, very, very, very rapidly. And the network there provided training and support to it to its members. And the members we heard of, we heard from told told us how that training was just completely instrumental in their own COVID response and being able to scale up their own COVID response and provide provide PPE, providing kind relief um, uh, and more. So that peer, peer uh, networking process, that's not just restricted to local NGOs either, but you know, we heard from the Philippines um, around uh, members of the National Council of Churches in that country, you know, their members who, um, who, we, who we, we, we heard about, you know, they're really discovering the, the value of operating as a network of, of almost sort of similar to local NGOs in a lot of respects in pooling resources, joint information sharing, joint advocacy and, 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 and so on. 
So very lastly, I said I'd be I said I'd be quick. So Diris also reported many of the, the funding mechanisms successful in reaching local NGOs in the last year seem to be ones that sit outside of the international humanitarian system uh, and uh, that ones that in some cases are really dedicated uh, pools of funding to supporting local action. So we heard, for example, uh, from Jordan, where the National NGO Forum issued a COVID emergency response plan uh, to civil society organisations. And Darius also made reference to the, the growing trend of toward the creation of pooled funding mechanisms at a national level that are led by, notion, by national and local actors, and where decisions on allocations are decided by those actors and by their members. So uh, among a, a, a good example of that is the SAFER Fund in the Philippines. So those examples, just, just to, to wrap up very quickly, those examples are very disparate, and I really stress that they don't yet change the fundamentals of how the internationally run, uh, internationally led humanitarian system operates. Unfortunately, our study also highlighted that progress within the humanitarian system, within the formal humanitarian system, remains quite slow. And where change is happening, it's really in spite of entrenched obstacles that are preventing you know more local humanitarian action that are being proven to be really resilient even in the face of covid so a lot of these initiatives are born out of frustration with the slow pace of change so rather than waiting for this reform agenda many local ngos many civil society organizations are in, in the words of one diarist losing patience with treading carefully um, so response mechanisms response systems led by national and local organizations um, peer support networks and, and alternative funding mechanisms, they do give a sense of sort of a growing, a growing sense of momentum that could eventually challenge the sort of the gatekeeper roles um, uh, that are currently occupied by many international organisations. But I think more than anything, and it's a very, very broad, very banal point to end on in some ways, but it, it just, this study really highlighted just that the, the extent of the world beyond the silos of the formal humanitarian system and that's the world that's long overdue you know greater recognition and greater support um, on the part of the, the the international humanitarian system so uh, that's it from me but uh, i'll just hand back to wendy so um, thank you for the opportunity thanks thanks very much john that was really interesting and, and helps to set the scene um i'd like to turn now to our panelists and i'm going to um i'm going to start with uh, seema seema as a director of a national NGO, what developments and changes have you seen at that level over the past five years? And, and how do you think the grand bargain policy process and commitments have impacted or not these developments for national NGOs? Um, sorry. Uh, great. Uh, thank you very much for that, um, uh, Wendy. So hello, everyone. My name is Sema. Uh, I'm the Director of Support to Life, a, a Turkish NGO. Uh, many thanks for inviting me here to take part in this most important discussion. Uh, so I would like to share with you my journey around localization. Um, it has evolved over time, uh, and I can say that I have experienced three different layers or, 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 or tiers of engagement. Um, so to speak. Uh, for me, uh, my engagement in the whole localization discussion has started with uh, the preparatory uh, phase to the World Humanitarian Summit. So for me, for my organization, and for other NGOs in Turkey, our engagement um, in the build-up to the, to the World Humanitarian Summit has been quite an empowering one. Uh, 
um, the, the WHS process gave us the opportunity to be present, to be visible, to share our views on where we felt you know, the shortcomings of the effectiveness and the efficiency of the humanitarian um, uh, system uh, was. And, and we were there as affected people, as local organizations working in affected countries. And it felt good to be, to be heard and to be a, a part of that consultation process. Um, so, um, you know, eventually we were happy to see localization come out as a strong message at the, the World Humanitarian Summit. Um, and it culminated in the signing of the grand bargain. Um, and again, you know, I was happy to have the opportunity to engage in the work streams, particularly um, uh, the one on localization. Uh, and I felt um, uh, I felt it was important for, for, for me to be able to and with other representatives of local organizations uh, to sit among the top policymakers of you know, donor governments, of UN agencies, INGOs, and to talk about how we can find ways of shifting to a humanitarian system that was more uh, that is more locally locally led. Uh, but over time, I realized that sitting and talking is not going to make a fundamental difference. You know, serious commitments had been made and I wanted to see them uh, put into practice. Uh, so to get things moving, I realized we need to push for change at the country level. This needs to be demand driven. Only at that level uh, will we begin uh, uh, seeing things differently or doing things differently. Um, so so um, I had seen uh, the challenge of pushing limits at the policy level. Um, so I thought it might be easier to push limits at the operational level. And as Turkey-based NGOs, uh, we, uh, uh, we formed um, a group um, called, we call ourselves a localization advocacy group. Um, and we come together um, and, and we, we have developed a strategy of how we can, at the country level, uh, perhaps influence uh, uh, some, some practices. Um, and those that form the localization advocacy group, we are we are only NGOs that access humanitarian funding. So we have a very humanitarian focus. Um, and, uh, you know, we work at the country level uh, with offices of international humanitarian actors. Um, you know, we talk about how, you know, funding uh, streams coming into Turkey. We talk about quality of, of partnerships. Um, we talk about participation and cluster coordination mechanisms. And we have actually started getting uh, some, some good results. Um, however, it wasn't until uh, the Izmir earthquake, uh, which took place last uh, year in October, that I realized that there is so much more to localization than just, you know, trying to tweak the operational setup and the tools of the humanitarian system. Um, and in response to the er earthquake and at a time of the pandemic, we managed to mobilize in-kind and cash assistance worth uh, almost 9 million Turkish lira, which is approximately 1 million euro with no external humanitarian funding. We mobilized hundreds of volunteers. We collaborated with local government and municipalities um, uh, in, in the process of that, of that response. Um, we are a collective of national uh, CSOs in Turkey uh, operating as a coordination platform linked to disaster relief. Uh, we also do a bit of disaster preparedness work. Um, and we're a mix, a great diversity of organizations. Only a few of us are actually making use of the international humanitarian uh, funds. Most of us raise funds for their activities domestically, either through individual donations or, or mobilizing private sector uh, resources. And the pandemic definitely has further strengthened this bond and the solidarity among civil society organizations in Turkey as the impacts of the pandemic 
are on the agenda of, of all civil society organizations across the board, and not just those working in the humanitarian uh, sector. Uh, so being able to mobilize such substantial resources uh, domestically, I came to, to realize that localization is not only about reforming the ways of working of the humanitarian system, it is about having a broader understanding um, about revisiting our philosophy of, of what it means to localize. Uh, so for me, this third level of engagement has shown me um, that what we call locally led or local ownership goes well beyond uh, the humanitarian sphere, bringing in that diversity of CSOs, their various approaches, their capacities, their networks, their resources, and engaging a, a much broader spectrum of stakeholders at the local, uh, at the local level is, uh, is absolutely key uh, to, to uh, true localization. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Seema. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I wondered, uh, just a quick follow-up question, really. Um, how, what sort of relationship does, you, does the platform have with the international community or international humanitarian system, if any? I mean, how do you interact with them? And have they, has there been a change in attitude or approach because of uh, this approach that you've taken? Um, the, the, you're talking about the civil society disaster platform, right? The, the, yes. the example I gave. Um, there is no connection to the humanitarian system. Um, interestingly, because at a time of crisis, Wendy, all organizations, whether they're humanitarian or not, but with, in whatever field they work, everyone's mobilized, you know, they want to go and, and provide support. So everyone's looking at, you know, what they have, their networks, their resources, their capacities, and, and, and is trying, you know, tries to, uh, to, to pitch in. So, so this is completely uh, outside of the, of the humanitarian system, this, um, this, um, this, this group that, that comes together related to, to disaster relief. Yes, I, I just thought, I thought that it sounded like such a significant development that you would expect the, sorry, international system to take note of that. But uh, no, really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to turn to Andrew now. Um, Andrew, I wonder what trends you've seen in civil society's response to the pandemic. I mean, how does this compare with the types of developments in civil society responses to humanitarian need over the past five years since the grand bargain commitments? Uh, thanks, Wendy. And yeah, what I'm gonna say, it, pretty similar to what's already been said. When we at Civicus looked at uh, the civil society response to the pandemic, uh, we saw uh, just a, tr tr a sort of automatic instinctive response by lots of small uh, civil society groups of different kinds at the local level, they didn't look for international funding. They didn't wait for formal go ahead. And we saw a lot of um, immediate repurposing of existing civil society organizations that uh, tend to work on things like advocacy for rights, immediately transition into like providing essential food and medicines and PPE. It was a kind of instinctive move. And what's interesting is, um, you know, the lessons from that are really not the lessons that funders necessarily want to hear because they're lessons about the need for core support and they're lessons about the need for flexibility in uh, in the use of funding and working practices and so on. Uh, and so, um, you know, the takeaway from the civil society response to the pandemic is 
it wasn't done the way that the people who often fund civil society would have liked it to have been done, but it worked. And, um, you know, people's experiences of the pandemic would have been much worse without civil society's help, you know, feeding migrant workers, uh, setting up um, uh, new uh, platforms to help people experiencing gender-based violence, uh, standing for LGBTQI people who were being attacked and slurred, a source of contagion. These all happened from civil society. And uh, instinctively, a link was made between providing essential services and standing for rights. So civil society groups did both of these things at the same time. You know, they handed out food and they also talked to the courts in Buenos Aires to ensure that children were given a laptop so they could be educated online, uh, which otherwise they wouldn't have had. Or, you know, going to the courts and um, ensuring that women had access to courts in Algeria, which were mostly closed uh, otherwise during the pandemic. And the other interesting thing is protest movements were part of this as well. You know, the Hirak protest movement in Algeria, uh, reoriented to providing PPE because the government wasn't doing it. Uh, the farmers protests in India, you know, during the terrible third wave that they've recently had in India, uh, they stayed in their camps, but they also provided food to migrant workers fleeing Delhi uh, to try and get home. So th these, uh, you know, it's important, really important to see that, you know, the, the, there's a spectrum of civil society activity from you know providing uh, these essential services to uh, advocacy and defending rights and protesting, and uh, we saw a lot of groups that were doing all those things simultaneously, making connections, and and they weren't waiting for the go ahead from anybody. Now at the same time, um, we saw a lot of government backlash to these attempts, right? And again, that's consistent with a broader pattern of civic space restriction that we've seen around the world. The lesson from that is. You, you have to take into account the civic space context if you're trying to support or enable localization. Uh, and that isn't just uh, the increasing restrictions on the receipt of funds that we see in many countries, the India, Russia model, the restrictions being rolled out in other authoritarian states, uh, but it's things like the increasing demonization of, of civil society voices in social media, increasing surveillance and censorship, uh, restrictions on protests, all these things have been accelerated uh, during the pandemic by uh, repressive states. Um, they've often been exercised against civil society trying to respond to the pandemic. So you have to take into account the civic space context uh, when thinking about how to support localization. It's absolutely crucial. And I think there's been a bit of a disconnect historically between the kind of civil society that's concerned with humanitarian action and the civil society like Civicus that's concerned with uh, speaking out about civic space and trying to um, trying to realise civic freedom. So it's absolutely crucial to start uh, making more of those connections and taking into account the civic space context more. Final thing, you know, I want to say in our conversations with uh, people at grassroots about their funding needs, there's a lot of scepticism about this idea of localization. Because uh, people see it's not happening much in practice, but people also see power isn't being redistributed. Power is staying at the centres. It's not being devolved to the peripheries, even if money comes. Uh, there's a big gap between the kind of, uh, as I say, uh, autonomous instinctive response we saw to the pandemic and the kind of technocratic jargon level up above. You know, and finally, we have to have a serious conversation now about the colonial underpinnings of much of aid. 
and the way that aid and mentalities and relationships are embedded in the very colonialization, which is at the heart of many of the problems we, we face in the world today. You know, with uh, the great wave of protests uh, since, since last May, uh, with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, we should have moved this to the top of our agenda, should have moved this to the top of the agenda of anybody who's involved in giving aid. Uh, and yet, you know, in countries including the UK, you see this backlash against the very idea that aid might be connected to justice and rights and power. And so taking on that backlash against aid as well as an important part of this agenda. So I'll stop there. Uh, that's, you know, I'll try to be brief, but obviously I think there's a lot of ground we could cover. Thank you very much, Andrew. No, that's really interesting. I have, um, when you were speaking, I was thinking about also one of the articles that we had in the Humanitarian Exchange by the Society for Nutrition, Education and Health Action uh, in Mumbai. And um, I, I just wondered about whether, you know, in terms of looking, we need to understand the context in the civic space in every context that we work in. But do you think that can vary or differ at different levels, i.e. at the state level versus uh, regional versus say uh, local or municipality? I think in the case of uh, Sneha, they've been working with community volunteers in the city for about 20 years. And a key part of their approach was to enable volunteers and people within the communities to advocate for better services. But they also simultaneously work with local government to help strengthen services and connect them to and improve relations with communities. So a, a long-term multifaceted approach, which seemed to really pay off during the COVID-19 response. I would imagine you see quite a lot of that. Yeah, and I, look, I think it's really important your point about you're right, a lot of the debate about civic space, and I, you know, I, to some extent my organisation does this too, is looking at national level conditions. And in a sense, many people don't live in nations as much as they live in cities. And uh, there's, there's not often uh, a sufficiently nuanced analysis of local civic space conditions. There's also sometimes not a nuanced analysis of, of, of where the sharp end of that restriction is, right? And it's important to say that we saw this particularly during the pandemic. Governments forgot about excluded groups more than they forgot about any, anyone else. Excluded groups like migrants and um, uh, refugees, you know, uh, young people, women, uh, indigenous groups. Uh, these were often left out or, or, or less served by governments. Civil society tried to help uh, excluded groups. But of course, the civic space of excluded groups is more restricted than the civic space of, of the population in general. So unless you take into account that you're dealing with, uh, say if you're trying to help uh, LGBTQI people in an emergency, you have to take into account the fact that almost everywhere the civic space conditions of that group are worse than the civic space conditions of the population as a whole. And if, if you don't factor that into your analysis, um, you're not gonna serve the needs of that group and you're gonna run up against a lot of, a lot of uh, unexpected obstacles, I'd say. No, very important. Yeah, more nuanced analysis, I agree. No, thank you very much, Andrew. Very important and uh, really interesting. I'm, I'm going to move on to, to May now. Um, May, one approach to humanitarian response that has emerged from and been pioneered by local organizations is uh, survivor and community-led responses to crises, or SCLR. And HPN published a network paper a couple of weeks ago introducing this approach 
how it's been used and how it might help humanitarian actors to deliver on their grand bargain commitments in practice. And the paper builds on the work of the Local to Global Protection Initiative's growing community of practice around community and citizen-led responses to crises. And I know, um, May, at the East Jerusalem YMCA, you've been working with partners um, around this approach, bringing the concepts from theory into practice in the Palestinian context. Um, I wondered, what do you think are the strengths of SCLR approaches? Because it isn't just one approach, of course. There are many different ways of operationalizing that. But what can donors and international organizations do to better support local NGOs and these types of initiatives? Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, we have been working with the SCLR approaches since 2012, um, 2012. So, um, and we have also learned a lot through this journey of work. Um, we learn actually us as an, uh, a local organization with our partners, international organization through practice. Actually, we were so flexible. We were so flexible to learn from the people and we learn among it, each other. And um, we have very, very uh, good experience now in this field. Actually, the strengths of this approach are, um, this approach keeps people at the center. Um, the approach acknowledges that people are the first responders. Uh, usually when we uh, talk about aid, which takes a lot of time uh, to, uh, uh, to, receive, uh, to be received by the people, but in this approach, people start to practice, try uh, to respond, to analyze their needs uh, and put their own plans. And it's done without any um, uh, communication with, the, uh, with either local NGOs or international NGOs. It's them. They do what, what they find appropriate and then their own, their own resources. And which, is, which taught us, uh, us a lot uh, when we were practicing. The other thing is that, um, just to be brief, about gender roles, because as, as you introduced me, I was working with, uh, with gender uh, since I started working with the YMCA in the, in the early 90s. But all the resources, all the funds we got, we didn't make such impact on this aspect. But when we started working on, the, on this approach, because it's really, really comprehensive. It's really comprehensive uh, approach, and it did not, it didn't fragment actually uh, targeting groups. We work with everyone because this is how change happens when you work with everyone. Everyone is active and interactive in their communities. So we started to monitor and notice that women role is changing. So we started to notice that women are gaining power in the community. They are becoming decision makers and they are becoming leaders in their community and they are really practicing a different role. Actually, we started to notice that when, uh, because we give uh, through this approach, we, we provide the community cash grants and they trust women mainly in receiving the money. 
and in handling the money and to take decisions. And this told us a lot about how, as Seema said, it's not about talking and giving lectures. It's about practicing different ways and giving them the opportunity to practice different roles in their communities. And this is where the real change happens. Uh, another thing that uh, happened because, as I told you, we give community cash grants. It's very, very limited, you know, up to $5,000. So they can do whatever they want. For the sake of the whole community, we find out that people top up those this money that they are provided with through in-kind in kind contributions and also in cash contributions. And this is really really very, very important because people in, in Gaza, for instance, in Gaza, the, uh, they uh, top up the grants with two, uh, with, they doubled it, you know, and it's not only the people and we find the village councils, the municipalities, they contribute not in cash, but for instance, they give the machinery, you know, if you want to dig a place or you want something. So it's about this approach broad cohesion among the uh, community members, which is really amazing. And we can do it through the traditional uh, aid. And now going to the uh, big words like the nexus, you know, a lot of, uh, of talk about the nexus, about the humanitarian uh, versus development and um, peace building. For the community members, for the people in the ground, they do not understand those definitions. They do not understand nexus or development or a humanitarian or peace building. They practice what they find important for them. They analyze the risks they face, they look at the needs, what they want, then they design the appropriate response. Either it is development or a humanitarian, they don't care. They did much, much, much better job than what we do. We try to make, um, you know, to give terminology to everything, but they practice a lot of better things on the ground. Uh, one more thing is uh, during the COVID-19, as the other said, I will not talk a lot, but they were really, really the first responders. And they did a lot of things without taking permission from a donor, or from a local organization, local NGO. They started to practice. They, are in, they, they were engaged and they were even innovative in their responses and the needs. Now, this is, there is a lot to say about this approach. I um, you know, encourage everyone to read the research, uh, the piece of paper that is done. But from a local point of view, I want to uh, ask or the, uh, uh, tell the donors what we want. First of all, we need to embrace other types uh, of local actors. It's not only, localization is not local organization only. There are different contexts, there are different needs, different types of people. They are, and different, we, we need to look at informal uh, uh, people, uh, informal uh, forms of doing aid. I know this will not be an, be an easy job, but there are more and more uh, international NGOs are now doing it and practicing, which is good and great. And we, we hope that it will find a place in the policies of the uh, system, of the humanitarian system. We are looking for real partnerships, actually. 
we do not, you know, um, we want to have shared values with international partners and donors. We want equal relationship on those partnerships. I want to remind all international NGOs and donors, we are not contractors. We are organizations who work on the same basis. We have equal rights and equal obligations. So be reminded, we are not contractors. Uh, and you know, with the uh, grant bargain too and the localization with the checklist, all of these issues with the new indicators, etc. So localization, guys, are is not a checklist. Do whatever you do. You can tick boxes, but you can't change facts on the ground. So we need to ask you that make a real transformation of culture and attitudes towards locals, because you know. But whatever you want, but also grand bargain is not uh, can't be enforced on on the signatories. And to be to do the commitments, you can tell me to to attend a meeting and to increase the number of participants from a local from locals. That means that we have a say, or we can influence. We do not want something pretension or superficial. Either it would be a genuine change, or we don't need it. So we can move as, uh, as we are. And now I noticed that most of the international NGOs who, who, who uh, signed for the grand bargain and who started to practice, they started to uh, use more restricted procedures because they are afraid. They do not trust locals. They want to take the checkbox, but they are afraid. And this is really, really important. We need you to look back and to see what you are doing. Because if it's not genuine, you will not change anything. Let's open a dialogue about these partnerships and about these. Uh, um, we need to redefine accountability. Um, should I stop? <laughs> Oh, no, sorry, May. I, I think we might need to stop now just so that we can, I know there are lots of questions from the, yes. the audience. I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm sure there will be opportunities uh, in the responses to come back. But, but thank you very much for that. And I think uh, you made a number of very strong and interesting points that everyone's taken note of. Um, let, let's uh, go to our audience now, uh, or the people who've joined us online. There are a few interesting questions for uh, all of you, I think. Um, I think I'm going to start here with um, a question from Juliet Frontier. And, uh, sorry, uh, let me just, yes, yeah, so here it is. Is there a risk that localization leads to a discourse of self-sufficiency? particularly in the refugee context where states avoid their legal responsibilities and put the onus on to displace people. How will this affect people who can't be self-sufficient like children or older persons? Um, does anybody want to start with that? I don't think I'll go to all of you so that we have a chance to answer some other questions as well. Maybe um, Sama, do you want to answer that sure. one? Wendy, I'd like to say a few things. Um, 
this this is an important issue in Turkey. We work, we have a, a quite a high number of, of refugees and we have been working with them for quite a long time, especially since uh, the crisis in Syria broke out and it's turned into a protracted crisis. Um, so we have been providing protection, uh, education, livelihood support, but now we feel that we've come to we've come to a stage where we need to work with refugee-led organizations. We have quite a few of those in Turkey as well, um, and and we see more and more refugees come together to establish their their own NGOs. So it's not only Syrian; these are Afghan NGOs, Iraqi uh, uh, NGOs. And, um, and I think they're an important group to reach out to their, to their own uh, communities. Uh, and, and each one of them, they work with you know, different risk groups. Um, they work in different parts of their, their disper dispersed all over Turkey. I mean, we as humanitarian actors are only you know, operational in a few cities and a few provinces, uh, but, but it's interesting to see how uh, you know, uh, refugee-led organizations as, a, as an intermediary uh, can actually support um, uh, affected uh, refugee uh, communities. So, so that's, that's an important, I think for us, for, for us as uh, national actors, as relatively stronger national actors, to work with them, uh, because for us, localization is also an issue for us. You know, it's not only for the international players, but we, we, you know, we're not there to provide, to continue providing uh, humanitarian assistance. So as a more durable solution uh, for self-reliance, for resilience, uh, for us to work with uh, refugee-led organizations, I feel is, is, is a good uh, way to go for that. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Sama. Um, I'm actually going to move on to another question, unless any of the other panelists have a burning desire to add something. Just raise, raise your hand if you want to. John, you're looking pensive, no? That's just, that's just my normal face, Wendy, but no, thanks. Um, no, it's just other than that, so I don't have an answer for that, that, that question about self-sufficiency, other than that's really, that's a really interesting point. Um, my first thought was just that I wonder whether there's any more danger of that than we've, we're experiencing now from international organizations, right? Like the sort of, I understand, I think I understand the question around the sort of neo, neoliberal sort of underpinnings of a lot of projects that are, that are working there, but is that, is that increased necessarily by a refugee led organization? I'm not sure, but um, yeah, interesting question. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm going to move on now to a question from Marcus Geiser, who's with the ICRC. Um, so he says a question for John, uh, Sam, and other panelists, of course, um, regarding operating in the COVID-19 response. Did the fact that it is especially a, especially a public health crisis highlight the relevance of state services, in this case, health? Were they at the forefront of the response and, and not humanitarians? Will the local COVID-19 crisis help to look beyond humanitarian local responders, but also integrate local state services, health, water, etc.? cetera? I, he, he said, I sometimes think that the localization debate forgets local state services with which internationals often collaborate. So, um, and I think this is a good one also for, for Andrew too. So maybe um, some as you've just spoken, I might turn to Andrew if you want to, if you have anything that you would like to comment on. Yeah, I mean, there were some good examples out there of um, 
there weren't many good examples of national government civil society collaborations in the context of the pandemic that we saw uh, when we looked at this late last year. Uh, there were some examples of municipal uh, governments collaborating with civil society responses. Uh, more examples of civil society attempting to make those collaborations happen were successful. I mean, what's striking is, you know, the number of times that governments set up task forces and just forgot to include anybody from a civil society. It, it wasn't always active hostility. Sometimes it just never occurred to them that civil society uh, had a role to play. So, yes, it, of course, it was a public health problem. And, of course, the health services were important. And often civil society was stepping in when people, particular groups were excluded from access to essential health. You know, the excluded groups didn't get PPPE, for example. So civil society stepped in to provide it. You know, it's a very clear example of where there was um, a gap that, need, that, that was filled. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, the pandemic has never been just a public health crisis. It's also been a human rights crisis and it's also been a political crisis. And it's, it's, it's alarming how many governments, so this is something that could be solved through top-down decision-making without consultation, without recognising local agency, without seeing the beyond health uh, uh, implications of this um, uh, pandemic, without criminalising uh, people for non-compliance rather than trying to build public trust, uh, without stigmatising people. And at times it seemed to me rather depressingly like uh, some of the lessons from the um, peak of the HIV AIDS pandemic hadn't been learned here in, in the same sense that HIV and AIDS was never just a health problem, neither was this pandemic and neither will be the next pandemic. Thanks very much, uh, Andrew. Um, does anybody else want to add? Samba. Maybe I can, yeah, maybe I can share um, our experience uh, in Turkey um, related to, uh, to the COVID response. The state has absolutely taken a, 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 strong, a stronger role. Um, they have provided assistance. They have set up neighborhood support teams, including municipalities. They have given the opportunity for people who want to contribute, you know, to um, to uh, to provide cash assistance or, or, or vouchers for, for families in need. Uh, civil society, the greater diversity of civil society, so not just humanitarians, uh, but civil society has been involved. And very importantly, the private sector hasn't has involved. So, um, you know, we've seen we've seen uh, companies uh, produce masks and distribute it out to people to people in need or sanitizers or, or things like that. So. Um, so, yeah, in, in Turkey, the, this has evolved very much outside the humanitarian system. In fact, very few huma humanitarian actors were actually uh, involved. Um, and yeah, so this has been our experience uh, in Turkey. Thanks, uh, Sama. Um, I've got one here that I think is specifically for May um, from Oliver Love, who is with the Humanitarian Policy Group. Um, Oli says, it's wonderful to hear about experiences of SLCR, SLCR, sorry, SLCR <laughs> in giving com uh, communities more say in their own response. And uh, has the model been attempted in refugee and displacement settings where communities have been fragmented and people may have limited rights to organize, handle money, et cetera. And if so, um, can you share any lessons learned? 
May, I think you're on mute. <laughs> yeah, actually in Palestine, it's not to say like per se displaced people in general, but we have displaced communities due to the occupation. And we have communities who are threatened for house demolitions, etc. So we have a little bit different setting here in, in Palestine. But I, um, I can tell you, we do not start giving money without um, uh, preparing the community on the approach. It has to be started with certain um, actions and activities, then you start giving money. But to tell you the truth, the most important part with which I didn't talk about uh, in my presentation is accountability, the downward accountability in the community. We are the locals, even the people who used to get money from the donors, our minds are set to, uh, to uh, out upward accountability. In this approach, it is a different story. It's about people in the community bringing them together and design their own accountability mechanism. In this way, you can guarantee that there is no fraud. So we have been working since 2015 in uh, cash grants. We have nothing was stolen. There is no fraud. On the contrary, they took up the funds because it's not individual funding. It's community funding. It's for the whole community. So this is the most important learning. It's about accountability and let them decide, let them vote about their needs to feel that they are owning uh, this. One other important thing here in Palestine, it's not the donors, the, inter the, uh, the money, it's not only coming from the international uh, aid system. We have people in diaspora, they are also sending money. So these are important. People are not only handling money from our uh, organization for, from, or the, from the international. There are other uh, sources of money, as Sima also said, from the private sector, from people in diaspora, from other sources. So if they are accountable, they uh, develop their own accountability system, I, I think they can manage. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, uh, May. I've got one here, which is an interesting one uh, that maybe Andrew would like to address. And it's, uh, it's from an anonymous attendee. Is there an Im imbalance in the localization agenda's focus on the global South? Do we also need to address local actors in Europe, for example, particularly in the context of governments criminalizing solidarity? Yes, that's an interesting question. Um, there's no doubt that one of the most uh, alarming um, things that's happening in, in terms of civic space at the moment is what's happening in Europe. Uh, and what's particularly happening in, you know, the lots of European countries have, have, have had this rightward authoritarian populist nationalist shift. Uh, it's clear who's being targeted under the this shift. It's the people who already have the fewest rights. And um, yeah, there's a, a rollback. Internationalism is obviously uh, vilified as a dirty word in that context. So I think there is something in that. Often we see there, there are European countries where, where, where uh, yeah, uh, to try to mobilize international solidarity is a dangerous thing. So it becomes difficult at both ends, right? 
even if you, even just in terms of financial resources, which isn't everything, it, it becomes it becomes both difficult to raise money and because then becomes difficult at the other end to receive money. Right. So, um, yeah, there's kind of a, a closing space at both ends of that relationship. I'm not, um, you know, I'm more focused on civil society in the global south. So um, I, I don't quite know um, where to go with uh, the support needs of, of European civil society. But um, it's a really interesting point. Like, don't just focus on the civic space of the country you're trying to localize to, but you need to focus on your own civic space in the country uh, where you may be based. The UK, UK NGOs know this too, right? Because of the guy, because of the because of the lobbying law and uh, the vilification of aid by the people in power in, this, in the UK. So um, focus on civic space at both ends of the equation, I guess, will be a really important takeaway. Thanks, Andrew. Um, we've only got a few minutes left. And I've got a question here that I'd like to give to all the panelists. And your challenge will be to provide your answer in one minute, if you can. So basically, the question is, what would you say about how international humanitarian actors, policymakers, and or donors can support local actors in action best? And this is from one of our attendees who also said many thanks to the panel for the very interesting contributions. So I think I'm going to uh, start with Sama, if that's okay. Sure. Um, there are, I think, a, a several different ways um, that, that donors and international um, actors can support. Um, I mean, in my experience, you know, working with uh, refugees in Turkey over eight years now, we have, you know, our operations have grown and grown and grown. Um, and, and to me, I feel that we need to expand that base of, of, of partners. Um, uh, and the best way of doing that is peer-to-peer -peer learning. I think this is something that can really be supported because there are, you know, plenty of uh, NGOs, um, locals, uh, local organizations that have really... Uh, um, that have really um, expanded that that know-how, the knowledge base, the experience, um, and it's and I think it's it's time uh, to share it with others. So that peer-to-peer -peer learning can be supported. We talk about capacity investment. I think this is this is a good way of really creating um, and investing in in what's already there and and building on that. Um, supporting collective action of CSO networks, that's really important. There is, uh, you know, a lot of networks, a, a lot of um, uh, organizations mobilizing around, you know, different themes, different issues that can be supported um, uh, by, uh, by, by donors, I feel. Um, consortia of local organizations. Usually we see intermediaries, each one working with different local partners. But, but, you know, but bringing together, because that also contributes to more the solidarity and the bonding rather than each one of us competing for, for those grants. Uh, so, so really looking at how we can better uh, establish or, or support a consortium of local organizations. Um, we uh, talk a lot about pool funds. I think there's a lot of potential. Um, there is, you know, some donors are looking at alternative uh, uh, pooled funds. We have one in Turkey that ECHO is piloting. 
uh, and through one intermediary, they're reaching out to only local actors. Um, this is good, but it's even better if you can actually, if donors can actually support locally owned funds. And we're, we're just starting to see examples of those in some countries um, where, where not only humanitarian donors, but others, the private sector and, and, and others can, can also contribute to that, to that pooled fund. So that's an important one. Um, and maybe one last point, uh, finding ways of, of encouraging government uh, and civil society collaboration, I think is an important one uh, for localization. So, you know, in the humanitarian sector, we focus purely on, on NGOs, but that, but that collaboration is, is, is key when we talk about localization. Thank you. It wasn't very short, sorry. <laughs> okay, Maya, or May, sorry, we'll go to you next. Again, um, can be as uh, quick as possible. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. just one, one thing. Actually, when I look from the outside about what's going on, I see there is a ladder. You have the donors and the internationals up there, and they are looking down to the locals and trying to see how they, what they should do to be entitled to localization. This is what I see. But I will advise all the international partners and the donors to go down a few steps down and change their policies and procedures so they can meet with the locals at some point in the middle. Thank you. Thank you. That was very succinct and uh, very clear. Thank you very much. And Andrew. Yeah, we've already had a really great shopping list there already, right? So I'll be brief. And it is connect to this uh, civic space debate. Take it, engage with the advocacy around civic space because otherwise if, if you're trying to support localization in conditions where civil society is highly restricted, you're gonna get failure and the danger is you, that, that you'll blame your attempts at localizing rather than the civic space conditions which stymie success. So, so keep making that connection, thank you. Thanks, Andrew. John, any last words? No, other than uh, sort of donors need to hold um, in the international sector's feet to the fire, really, in terms of upholding, upholding their own commitments, which they've already made quite, quite a lot of time. So, yeah, that's it for me. But, yeah, thank you to all the panellists. Really, really interesting discussion. Thanks. That's great. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, we've now run out of time, but the recording of this event will be available in a couple of days on the event webpage. And we'll share links to the chat to all of the publications referred to today. Uh, and make sure you sign up to the HPG HPN newsletter to hear more about our work on this issue. So I just wanna thank everyone who sent in questions and added thoughts to the chat. And finally, I want to extend a big thank you to all of our speakers today for providing such insightful uh, and informative perspectives on this issue. So thanks again, everyone, and uh, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.